Here the prophet speaks of the Lord's coming salvation with the proclamation of peace through His uh, anointed preacher. Isaiah 52, verses 7-10. to How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation and who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And now our New Testament Scripture reading to us coming uh, from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. As Jesus continues to publish these proclamations of blessings upon the citizens of Zion, as the Lord has indeed returned to His people, our Savior says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that as we give attention to Your Word, even as we hear it, You would bless the reading of Your Word. We pray that it would not fall on deaf ears, but that You would so tune our hearts to the blessings of heaven, that we might sing Your praise and be conformed more and more to the image of Your Son. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think one of the great highlights of the past few weeks has most definitely not been spending seven days in the state of Pennsylvania. It's 90 degrees out there when Jones and I went. Uh, the uh, air condition in our dorms was busted. Uh, it was not a pleasant experience. Uh, however, to counter that, one of the great joys that I've had uh, in being back is uh, getting to spend time with my brother uh, who is in town. He's leaving this afternoon uh, back for uh, the Sunshine State. Uh, but what's so interesting is when uh, he first came two weeks ago, so many people walked up and said, either to him or to me, that my brother is the spitting image of our father. Uh, you know, people have told me, yeah, like, yeah you, you, kind of, you might look like your dad, but when people have seen my brother go, no, 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 he looks like your dad. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is identical. Uh, it's so interesting. Alex looks just like my dad, but when it comes to personalities, everybody would say that I am the spitting image of my father uh, when it comes to personality. I remember our old pastor uh, growing up would look at me and say, Charles, the nut does not fall far from the tree. I said, don't you mean the acorn? And he said, no, I said what I said. (laughs) I think it's something that we recognize instinctively, that there is a certain relationship between sonship and personality, and character. I remember my mom having said there a number of times, uh, you know, just driving down the road, how just even my posturing in uh, sitting in the driver's seat reminds her so much of her father. Um, one of my best friends, uh, who did not ever really know his father, one day was, uh, when he was in high school, was caught uh, whistling a Frank Sinatra tune, and it turns out, unbeknownst to him, that it was his father's favorite song, and it really kind of shook his, his mom. 
Well, we see here the Bible has this same understanding that there is some type of relationship between sonship and character. That's why we have that, that, that language of spitting image. That somehow, in some way, we reflect our own earthly fathers, be it in personality or in physical appearance. Well, the Bible, again, uses similar language. It uses the language of image-bearing. We, in one sense, are like a mirror in which we are called to reflect the character of our Heavenly Father. We are a reflection of the original. The great blessing that our Savior pronounces upon the citizens of heaven is this, that the inhabitants of Zion will mirror the character of the one in whose image they have been made. There's a particular feature that Jesus brings into view here, something in which we reflect the character of our great and triune God. That particular reflective character is not found in a bristly beard, nor in the gait of our walk, nor in our posturing. Rather, that reflection is seen in the great work of reconciliation, that of making peace. I like us to consider what it means to be a peacemaker and how it relates to the blessing that Jesus pronounces on uh, the citizens of heaven this morning. Two things I'd like us to consider. First, we'll consider the matter of mediation, right? That, uh, that, that's what we mean by making peace. And then, secondly, I'd like us to consider the matter of sonship. So, mediation or peacemaking and sonship. This is the great proclamation that we hear. It's the reason we gather together every Lord's Day. The Son of God has come to make peace between God and man. It's found in the Scripture verses we have read this morning. It's found in the songs that we sing. It's the very grounds for how, why it is we can even approach the throne of grace. Because Christ, by His death, has made peace between God and man. There is no greater news I imagine the joy that came to the Western world on May 8, 1945, the day that the Nazis surrendered to the Allied forces. There's a wonderful feeling of peace and safety that swept all across not just the continent of Europe, but all across the globe in many respects. But more important than that subjective feeling of peace, as good as that feeling of security is, it's grounded in an objective reality that the enemy forces had finally been defeated. It would do no good to feel safe if the enemy forces were still marching out and about and trying to conquer the land. More important than the subjective feeling is the objective reality. And so when Scripture speaks of the proclamation of peace, it's not simply talking about, the, uh, as the eagles will put it, the, the peaceful, easy feeling that we sometimes get. Rather, it's about the proclamation that the hostility between God and man has come to an end. The enemy has been vanquished. Victory has been secured. Paul tells us that it was the Father's good pleasure to reconcile all things to Himself through the blood of His Son. Christ, who, as Colossians 1 tells us, made peace by the blood of His cross. It is at the cross that Christ triumphed over Satan by nailing our sins to the cross. It was at the cross that the hostility between God and man had been brought to an end. The very reason the Son of God became man was to mediate between God and man, to bring an end to the hostility that had been erected by man in the Garden of Eden. 
Right? We could summarize the Christian mission, or more foundationally, we could summarize Christ's mission in this single word, reconciliation. The great work of reconciliation, though, assumes two things. First, it assumes that there has actually been an offense, an offense that has been made against one of at least two parties. The second thing that it assumes is that the offended party is willing to be brought back into fellowship or to bring the offending party back into fellowship with him. And that is the great message of the gospel. Paul speaks of his great work as an ambassador of Christ and proclaiming that particular message. Sin has erected a wall between God and man. God is a holy God and he cannot wink at sin. God would have every right uh, to damn us all to hell, even from the womb. And so great is God's merciful disposition that He established a way to reconcile man to God. God is not the offending party here. God is the offended party. God has done no wrong. We are the wrongdoers. And yet the Maker of heaven and earth has seen fit and the exaltation of His mercy to send His Son to come and die for our sins. You know, I think so many of us, even though we hear the good news and we think, yes, that is true, and we might rejoice in it, I think some of us have this kind of implicit, nagging suspicion that the Father is somehow reluctant to have effected this. It's actually one of the earliest church heresies we see in the history of the church. That you have this, this uh, kind of grumpy, reluctant God who is appeased by the blood of His Son. And because Christ has paid uh, for our sins, the Father says, okay, well, I guess I'll let you back into my good graces. But don't you mess up again. Because I have a lightning bolt in my hand ready to strike at the first instance and the slightest fault. But what we see is that is not what the New Testament tells us. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of His Father. Not simply that Jesus is of a similar character as the Father. Rather, Jesus is the spitting image of His Father. Jesus Himself tells the disciples He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the exact reflection of the disposition of His Father in heaven. That's why we recite the Nicene Creed. There's that phrase that I think so many of us are left scratching our heads saying, why is this so important? When we confess that God is very God of very God of one substance with the Father. Think of what a a world of difference we would be if we simply said that Jesus was mostly God of mostly God of similar substance with the Father. If we said that Jesus was only similar to the Father, that would assume that there's some amount of difference. And you know what that means? Confusion and doubt would set in. Assuming that perhaps God is not as gracious as His Son is. But that is not the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. That is not the biblical doctrine of our salvation and revelation. We are told that Jesus is the spitting image of His Father. He does not simply resemble somewhat the character of His Father in heaven. Rather, He is His exact representation. 
So that when Jesus willingly goes to the cross, it is because the Father has willingly sent His Son to the cross. And that when Jesus goes to the cross, He willingly goes to the cross. That we might be reconciled to Him. In other words, the work of Christ reveals the heart of the Father. Just as the work of Christ reveals the heart of Christ. So the work of Christ reveals the heart of His Father. So long the Father to have the children of men be brought back into fellowship with Him that He gave His only begotten Son. John 3.16 does not say for uh, uh, God sent the world so that He might love uh, 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 sinners, but rather for God so loved the world that He sent His Son. That the, the love of God precedes the sending. It's, again, the point is not that God is somehow reluctant prior to the cross and now kind of throws his hands up in the air and says, I have no choice but to bring you back. Now, the very purpose of the cross, predestined by the Father from before all worlds, was that he might reclaim the children of Adam, sons and daughters, to the death of his beloved son. This is why reconciliation is so important. And yet we see that Christ in His work, as He reveals the heart of the Father, as the spitting image of His Father, He comes not only to reconcile man to God, but He also comes to reconcile man to man. This is Paul tells the church at Ephesus that Christ Himself is our peace. Again, it's that objective view that's being brought into place. Christ, who has made us, both Jew and Gentile, one body. We who are formerly divided by various forms of hostility. Christ has broken down that wall of hostility that He might create in Himself one new man in place of two, thereby making peace. So that the effect of the cross-distinction between Jew and Gentile, slave or free, male or female, in this regard, that we all have the same access to the heavenly courts. Just because I'm the pastor does not mean I have special access to the Father that you don't have. Something we call the priesthood of all believers. We all have the same access, and it's all on the same base. It's not our own personal holiness, not our own ethnic status or how much money we have in our bank account, our own gender or race, or any other distinction or discriminating feature we want to have. We are only brought near by the blood of Christ, on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. In Christ the solid rock I stand, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Christ has come as the great peacemaker to reconcile man to man and also to reconcile man to God by bearing our sins at the cross to put an end to that hostility both vertically and horizontally that we might be reconciled and adopted as sons and so that we too might mirror our Father in this peacemaking disposition. Now, on the one hand, we want to say that Christ's work as Son is unique. I cannot die for your sins. I'm a sinner. 
I am not a son of God by nature. I'm only a son of God by grace. Christ, who is the eternally begotten Son of the Father from before all worlds by nature, came and in a unique representative way went to the cross to bear our sins once for all as a sacrifice for sin. There's something unique about Jesus' position. His role as the mediator, and we cannot presume to tread upon that particular office. And yet, at the same time, Scripture also affirms that even as Christ has died for us, He also left us a pattern for imitation, that we might walk in His steps. Jesus is the Son of the Father from eternity past by nature, but by His death and resurrection, He now makes us sons and daughters of God by grace. Even though we were children of wrath by nature, destined for eternal destruction, God in His grace has received us and adopted us whereby we might call Him Abba Father. Now Christ's death, He sets that pattern for us. Even though he, he makes reconciliation between God and man in that unique sense, we are now called to reflect that even in our day-to-day uh, lives and the things that we do. Christ, having ascended on high, has poured His Spirit out on His church that we might replicate His Father's disposition in that work of reconciliation. And this is why the New Testament places such emphasis on reconciliation, even at the horizontal level. Consider what James says. As he writes to the church, he says, what is it that causes quarrels and fights? Is it not your own passions at war within you? To be ruled by such such a covetous heart, it characterizes the world. And it characterizes those who are friends of the world. And such a disposition reflects a heart that is still at war with God. To be friends with the world is to be at enmity with God. James says. Think what Jesus says to the Pharisees, those who are considered to be the religious uh, big guys of the day. Jesus looks at them and says, you're of your own father the devil because you bear his image, sowing discord and lies. You reflect your demonic father But Jesus, as He gives this blessing on the citizens of heaven, says, and that this great blessing, we will reflect the image of our Heavenly Father who has adopted us by grace. We will no longer be sowing seeds of lies and slander and gossip and discord and contempt. Rather, we will be seeking to make peace. This is why Scripture requires that church officers not be quarrelsome or conceited, but rather that they be sober-minded and self-controlled. Why? Because it's, it's true for everyone, but especially office bearers as they are, uh, as elders and deacons and the pastor are to model what godliness looks like for the people of God from the youngest to the oldest. To show what it looks like to reflect the image of our Father in heaven. And as we reflect that image, we are called to exercise self-restraint and even forbearance. That's why Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Right, this is not a, a peace at all costs scenario. You remember the, 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 the infamous story of Neville Chamberlain as he, in 1938, seeks to make peace uh, with uh, Hitler as Hitler makes all these demands right before the Second World War breaks out. 
and, and Neville Chamberlain basically concedes to all, nearly all of Hitler's demands, thinking that this will achieve peace in our time. And it turns out that it wasn't simply peace that he was making. It was not peace. It was rather pacification. Jesus is not calling us to pacify our enemies by compromising uh, on every jot and tittle. Rather, what Paul says here is, insofar as it depends upon you, seek to live peaceably with all. It assumes a certain reality, but sometimes it's just not possible to live peaceably with everyone. But so far as it depends on you, so far as you are concerned, you do everything you can within the confines of of Scripture without compromising the truth of God's Word. Let the rest fall to them. This is not a call for pacification, but rather a good faith labor in keeping the peace. Sometimes this means, uh, just on, on a daily level, simply having to take it on the chin at times. Learning what it means not to retaliate. Because what is most important for each of us should not be being right but for maintaining the peace. Even when slandered or publicly humiliated. Now the Bible will say elsewhere, even in Proverbs and 2 Timothy 3, that there are some men who are simply unappeasable. And though there may not be reconciliation in this life, or perhaps even in the next, we should do all we can for there to be reconciliation without compromise. That means bearing that posture of forbearance and humility. Taking it on the chin, hoping and praying that through that kindness, there will one day be a making of amends. See, the heart that has been washed by grace seeks to mend those broken fences insofar as it depends upon us. We see this even in our church discipline. So, so many people see church discipline as, a, as an angry, retaliatory thing, but that is not the disposition of church discipline according to our Savior. Church discipline is intended to be restorative, not vindictive. As we pursue the reclamation, not the humiliation of the offender, does that mean that the offender will uh, 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 always come back? No. Sometimes you have to speak those hard truths and let him know you are outside of the body of Christ. And we say this to you as one that we hope will repent so that you might be restored, but we can't pretend that things are okay as they are. But just because we're telling you that things are not okay does not mean we do not want things to be okay. We do not use those positions in which we have been hurt uh, to finally go, yes, and stick it to the man. To a church that has been torn apart by pride and strife, Paul closes his last letter to Corinth by insisting that they be proactive in such peacemaking pursuits. As he says this, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. That's the goal. Again, the reality is it might not happen, but it should not stop us from trying. Comfort one another, agree with one another. And live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. To the church of Ephesus, Paul writes, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit to which, into which we have been brought, employing all humility and gentleness in so doing. A couple things to note there. We are to be eager to maintain a unity that already exists 
In other words, we should not be eager to try to make a unity. Rather, there's an assumption that there is a unity that's already there. Why? Because the unity is found in our common confession of faith that Christ has forgiven us of all of our sins. And we have been brought into the presence of the living God, not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of the righteousness of Christ alone. And because we are that one body, we should be zealous to maintain that unity, not to let our own personal pride or our own uh, uh, desires get in the way. That's why Paul says to employ all humility and gentleness in the process. Forsake all bitterness when being wrong. Forsake wrath and clamor, slander and malice. Rather, instead, Paul says, be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? And how? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Again, there's that model. The model of peacemaking. In other words, the sons of God mirror their heavenly Father in that work of reconciliation. Because we have been made and now we have been remade in His image according to the image of His only begotten Son. See, the peacemaker pursues reconciliation. He seeks not pacification, but lasting peace where possible. And he avoids the contentious man who can never be appeased. It's a work that we pursue. It's a work that we pursue not only with respect to friends and family. I think it's something that naturally all of us would want to do. But here, our Savior takes it a step further as it is a work that we are to pursue even with our enemies. As Jesus Himself will say elsewhere, love your enemies and do good. Lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be what? You will be called sons of the Most High. For even He Himself is kind to ungrateful and to evil men. Why is it that we love our enemies? Why is it that we pursue peace? The very reason that we are told over and over again is this reason. Because our Heavenly Father loved His enemies. Our Heavenly Father loved us when we were enemies. And He has pursued peace by sending His Son. Now that He calls us sons, He calls us to the same task that we bear His image. That we, through that process of sanctification from one degree to another, begin to look more and more like Him, that we might be called the spitting image of our Father. See, this is why unity is such a significant mark in the church. And Sinclair Ferguson, in commenting on this uh, passage, says this, he says, how odd it is that divisions happen for the, uh, among those who claim to be the most biblical. What an indictment it is on the church in this day and age that those who claim to be the most biblical are the ones quickest to discard the unity of the body. I'm not speaking about any in particular individual. I mean, this seems to be something that characterizes the church in America as a whole. We don't see what a blight division is in the body of Christ. You think of the Reformation. Why is it that for two generations, not only in Luther's day, but also in Calvin's day, there's these repeated attempts by Protestants to try to have reconciled with the Church of Rome. Why didn't they, though? Because you can't, you can't compromise the truth. 
And yet they, they were willing to go over and over again and say, we would love to reconcile, but not until you affirm the biblical doctrines of grace. Because Rome refused. Luther and Calvin, they said, we, we can't be reconciled. Not until there's repentance. Repentance is needed for reconciliation to take place, be it in terms of doctrine or in terms of life. Unity is so important. Thomas Watson notes, a great Puritan says that divisions bring scandal upon the Christian religion. When Consider what outsiders think when they see yet another split raging another congregation, another church popping up, another denomination popping up over and over and over again like bunnies. It just keeps replicating. Why is there this inability to reconcile and make amends? Perhaps we need to put peacemaking front and center in our own lives as individuals, as the body of Christ. Slander, strife, gossip, splits. These things should not be common among the people of God. And so insofar as possible among us, we should pursue peace to ensure that that does not happen again. And they happen so much. I'm not just simply speaking about here, but so often. Because we don't grasp what Christian discipleship truly entails. See, Christianity is more than simply finding out who knows more content to win the next round of Bible Jeopardy than, uh, than everyone else. Christian discipleship includes and entails letting Scripture so mold your character that you reflect the image of your Father. See, everyone wants peace. I think if we asked anybody, you know, which would you prefer, war or peace? I think most people, maybe not everybody, but most people would say we want, we want peace. But few are willing to pay the price. I think what we want, really want, naturally speaking, is our own way all the time. And when we don't get our own way, then, well, peace is off the table. And yet we see here this emphasis that unity is a mark of the kingdom of grace. It reflects the disposition of the sons of the Most High that they seek to make peace. They seek to make amends. That's why Psalm 133 begins, Blessed, or, you know, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's a mark of grace, but it's also a mark of holiness. That's why Hebrews 12.14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is the, this intimate relationship between peace and holiness. So often we think of holiness as being kind of the, the affect that we have in our public prayers. You think, oh, that's a holy guy because of kind of the, the way in which he prays. He has kind of this deep, grovelly voice when he prays. He must be really holy. But when you read the Bible, holiness is about truly biblical relationships. Lives that are characterized by continued repentance, forbearance, and forgiveness. Holiness consists in those renewed and those proper relations. Those who have been adopted by grace long to promote peace in the home, in the church, and even in the nation. Again, it's not a peace at all costs. It's not pacification. But rather, it is a healthy wholeness that is grounded in a gracious truth. As Jesus tells His disciples, the world will know we are Christians by our love with a peacemaking that entails long-suffering with others. 
It entails humility, kindness, the quiet courage that is needed to say no at the right time, and the grace needed to forego our own desires for the sake of the peace and unity of the church. Be eager to maintain the unity that we already have in Christ. Let the peace which Christ has secured for us rule our hearts. Let it so order our lives, Paul tells the church at Colossae. So one final remark when we read the Beatitudes. Where we see the, um, the, the first, the opening clause as being conditional or causative. The final clause being the effect, where somehow we think that our sonship is based off and contingent upon how well we make peace. And yet, the entire way that I've tried to shape this message and reflect the biblical structure is to dispel that very notion. Peacemaking is not the cause of our sonship. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers so that they can be called the sons of God. Rather, what Jesus is doing here is describing the character of those who are or shall be called the sons of God. Does that make sense? That's a a huge chasm of a difference. Our Savior is not telling us, you better make peace so that God will accept you. Quite the reverse. God has adopted us as sons. Just as earthly sons image their earthly father in character or in disposition, so too do the sons of the kingdom image their father who is in heaven. Jesus is describing the great character trait of those who are the sons of the Most High. That is why they are blessed. That is why we are blessed. And what a blessing and privilege it is to call God our Father. Notice that, that it's not simply, we don't pray in the Lord's Prayer, my Father who's in heaven, as if it's just me and God and nobody else. Rather, there, there is a, a communal aspect even brought in to bear with this model prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray, that it is our Father. As we pray this together, to notice not only that we've been, but now we've been adopted together as a family, So that the Lord brings the widows and the orphans and those who are isolated.